Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 342 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We'll get right into our conversation after a word from our sponsors. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Forum is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Forum believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Forum is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first, and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. For the first time in a while, I have quite a bit of fun travel coming up this summer, and I'm really counting on Macy's to help round out my wardrobe for some of these trips. Right now, I've got my eye on a new bag and sandals from Coach and some super cute tops and dresses from Macy's On 34th brand. And you can never really have too many pairs of sunglasses. And there are a lot of cute options to explore right now. If you need a little help getting your summer look together, shop at Macy's.com slash own your style. Welcome back for another episode of our January Jumpstart mini-series. All month long, we're having conversations with talented Black women leaders across creative and professional mediums to assist you in putting the P in prioritizing your personal growth. If you've been holding back on doing you, this is your sign to jump headfirst into the possibilities of a new year. I don't think it would be too far-fetched to say that human beings were never meant to see so many people's opinions on a daily basis. And yet, social media makes this a reality. 
With us entering a new year, I think it's a perfect time to begin to reevaluate our relationship with social media. Joining me to share more about the relationship between mental health and social media is board-certified psychiatrist Dr. Judith Joseph. Dr. Joseph is an expert on various media platforms and has made national television appearances on Good Morning America, The Today Show, CBS News, and more. She recently received a U.S. Congress Proclamation Award from the U.S. House of Representatives for her social media advocacy and research in mental health. In our conversation today, Dr. Joseph and I discuss how to determine what a healthy use of social media looks like, some small strategies to unplug without quitting social media cold turkey, and ways to avoid comparing yourself to the people on your feed. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please share it with us on social media using the hashtag TBGInSession. Or join us over in the sister circle to talk more about the episode. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Joseph. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's an honor to chat with you. So I'd love for you to take us down a trip down memory lane to tell us about your earliest experience actually using social media for yourself. For me, it was really using MySpace, Facebook. Those were the early precursors to social media. And I just remember in college, people talking about it and saying that, It was a great way to basically keep up with your friends and see what they were doing and also a way to feel as if you're part of the gossip because people were doing hot or nots and things like that. So you didn't want to be left out. So those are my earlier experiences with FOMO. And how would you say you've seen the social media landscape change throughout your career? It's interesting because I treat children, adults and adolescents and Early in my training, we really didn't know much about social media and how it impacted children because it was so new. And right now, I'm seeing that the generations that were born into a world where there was always social media, there was always internet access, there was always tech that was transportable, you could have tech wherever you wanted. I'm seeing that the data is finally catching up and we're seeing some harmful patterns with overuse. And just like anything in life, if you use things without knowing the dangers, then you don't know how to protect yourself. You don't know how to not be as vulnerable. So I think we're seeing a lot, especially in my practice, of how social media is impacting human development and your well-being. Mm. Can you say a little bit more about some of the connections that you're seeing between mental health and social media usage? Definitely. People who use social media to basically communicate and to replace one-on-one in-person interactions are finding that it's difficult to feel satisfied with these interactions. They have this metric, this constant way of holding themselves up to someone else. They're constantly comparing themselves to others. There's no break. They're bombarded with images. And it becomes kind of like a new reality for them. So being in the real world, being one-on-one with someone, that doesn't become reality for a person if the majority of their interactions are online. That becomes their new reality. And I'm seeing this across all developmental phases. You know, as I mentioned, I treat children, adolescents, and adults. And children 
who are using social media or social digital means to interact with the world, their brains are just not made for that. We were not designed to interact with the world in a two-dimensional screen. We were designed to be a part of the world. And what I'm seeing is delayed learning, shorter attention spans, irritability, and poor social reciprocity with the younger individuals who have had exposure to digital uh, devices and, and social media early in life because it replaces and it has replaced the one-on-one rich interactions that we as human beings were made to have throughout development. So I'm seeing that in earlier ages. In adolescent ages, I see a lot of anxiety and depression. And looking at the CDC's data, it's very evident that with exposure to prolonged social media use over time, people have more anxiety, they have more depression, they don't feel as if they're good enough, there are self-esteem issues, and some studies show a correlation with eating disorders as well. With adults, we're fortunate that the majority of us have had our early development not impacted by social media. We had the typical experiences, we were out playing outside, we had interactions where we had to be one-on-one with someone. If we said something mean to someone, we saw their face reacting. We were like, oops, I shouldn't have said that. You know, we didn't have that siloed experience where we could send a mean text or a mean comment and not see the person's reaction. So we've developed that social reciprocity. But even adults who have had, quote-unquote, traditional childhoods are still impacted by prolonged social media use. In some studies, it shows that if you use social media for hours a day, if you don't limit it to less than 30 minutes a day, you're more likely to have depression and anxiety compared to people who limit it or who don't have access to it. So even as adults who've had rich, traditional, typical childhood developmental experiences without prolonged social media or digital use, even we are impacted. So imagine a brain that is developing, that is learning how to be in the world, learning how to interact in the world. Imagine that brain being exposed to prolonged digital technology and social media. We really don't even know what the really long-term effects are, but we know short-term studies are showing that there is a delay in social reciprocity and increase in depression and anxiety. So this is a cause for concern. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're sharing this with us, Dr. Joseph, because it does feel like we're just now getting some research, especially with young people and social media. But I'm curious. So even with kids still kind of spending the whole day at school, right? So even the school day that is about six to eight hours where they may be using some technology, but probably not a lot of social media. We are still not seeing that be enough to counteract the impact of being on social media for a couple of hours a day. It's not. And a lot of schools are adopting a technology driven platform for their education. I know that in schools in Manhattan, a lot of the schools have laptops, even children as young as kindergarten age are hiking up the stairs with these laptops, right? So they're not really getting a respite. They're not really getting that full non-screen exposure, even at school. And think about that. That's where they get a lot of their learning. That's where they're supposed to connect to others. But many of them are spending time on screens at school, after school, and then for their relaxation when they're done with their homework. So these are brains that are constantly online. And I know it sounds like alarming and it's a cause for anxiety. And we're not going to escape technology, but there are ways to balance that so that you're not entirely 
online. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Dr. Joseph, about kids being bored without social media. So we see those conversations online all the time. And this idea that like children don't enjoy like being outside and like playing with their cousins. Like, you know, one of our producers is talking about even over the holiday break, she observed this with people in her own family. What are your thoughts about that? You know what? Boredom is a natural and typical part of childhood development. If you look at really young children, even younger than two, if you put them on the floor and you put an empty box there and a spoon, they're going to crawl to it. They're going to want to be curious. That's built into our DNA as human beings, to be curious, to be imaginative, to use what we have at the tip of our fingers, literally and figuratively, to entertain ourselves because children's brains are so malleable. We're learning how to interact with the world. We're learning how to explore our senses. That's why children put things into their mouths. If you ever saw a small child licking on their fingers and then tasting everything in the room, it's because they're built to explore and to be curious. So when a child says they're bored, that really means that they haven't tapped into that imagination. They haven't tapped into the creativity. So that's an opportunity for us to encourage that to you know, allow them to play, to draw, to color, to build. And that's where they really learn because they're learning problem solving. You know, The problem being, I'm bored, what do I do about it? They're learning that they have that mastery, that agency, and that they can entertain themselves, that they can create play. And if you put any child in a room with another child without technology, they'll figure out a way to play. I know because I have um, cameras everywhere in my clinic because I treat children and sometimes I want to see what they're doing. Sometimes I observe them when they're in the waiting area to see, oh, okay, that child has their attention improved or their ADHD is getting better, their anxiety is improved based on what I'm seeing. And if you see children in the waiting area, even if they don't know each other, there's there are no video games there. So they will figure out a way to play with each other. I've seen the most creative things like kids playing as if the waiting room table and chairs are like a tent or a fort. They're just built to do that by design. But children are not built to be on screens all day. So boredom is an opportunity for creativity. It's an opportunity for imagination. And I find that a lot of the parents that I work with, they want to solve this issue of boredom. They see it as a problem. They see it as being a bad parent, like, oh, my child is bored. That means that I'm not providing enough. But sometimes as parents, the best thing we can do is just to sit on our hands, literally. One of my colleagues, Dr. Harsting, says, Put your hands under your thighs and literally just wait. Don't try to fix it. They will figure it out because sometimes children need to figure it out. That's how they learn. That's how they grow. So what are your recommendations for parents and other adults in your practice around how they do then limit or take all away any screen time for the young people in their lives? I think that it depends on the individuals. And I use this acronym across the board for individuals. So I call it RESET. The R is realization. Is this issue causing a problem for you? Because not everyone sees this as a problem. Some people think, listen, this is a part of my job. I have to be online. You know, I can't get around this. But for others, it's a problem. And some people will say, my partner says that I'm always on my device, or my child always says that I don't have time to play. Or they realize that they're not feeling fulfilled. They feel anxious and depressed if they're distracted by tech. So realize if this is an issue for you, you may not be able to identify it on your own. There are online tests that you can use to see if you have a social media habit that is unhealthy, and that may be able to give you that feedback. And the second, the E in reset is educate. 
learn about the resources out there. There are studies, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, American Pediatric Association, they give you guidelines. There are recent CDC studies that tell you about what the impact of social media is on the child and adult brain and your mood and your behavior. So learn about it. There are excellent podcasts out there and communities that are devoted to educating people about this. So really educate yourself. And then the S is a solution or a strategy. So you want to figure out what is workable for you, right? Like what is feasible? Because many of us, if you're in marketing, like a lot of my clients, or if you are in media, a lot of times you can't just tune it out completely. So you're going to have a different benchmark compared to someone else. You're going to have another measure. And so figure out what it is for you. With the families that I work with, sometimes it's like, a, okay, after 7 p.m., no devices, or they'll turn the internet off in their home. And for some others, students that I work with, it's, okay, I'm going to allot this time to that time to not be on a device, and I'm going to be doing something else pleasurable, like exercising, reading, seeing friends one-on-one. You have to come up with a strategy for yourself. For others, it's you know new parents who are expecting their first child. They come up with a plan together that, okay, we're both going to stay on task with this. We're not going to let the child be on a screen earlier than age two. We're going to follow these guidelines. You have to come up with the strategy that works for you. And then, you know, the E in reset is what is your expectation? What are you hoping? So like the second E, what are you hoping to gain from this? Are you hoping to feel better? Are you hoping to have less anxiety, less depression, better sleep? Because social media use and digital use is associated with poor sleep. Are you hoping to have more meaningful relationships, more richer relationships and communication? So what are your expectations? Because you need a way to figure out if you're making progress in in the direction that you want to go into. And then the T is the thoughtfulness. Reflect on it. How is this making you feel? I don't think we spend enough time thinking about how we feel. A part of that is technology. You know, we depend on memes and feedback online to tell us how to feel. But We lose sense of who we are. We lose a sense of our own inner barometer for how we feel. So just reflect on the process. So really be thoughtful. Did it work? Did it not work? Do you need a bit of tweaking? Is there trial and error that needs to be done? And the thoughtfulness part also plays a role when you're thinking about what are you going to do with this extra time? Are you going to use this time as a family to say, listen, we now have this pocket of time to use. Let's spend time together. Let's all vote on it. Or as an individual, what am I going to do at this time to make it meaningful, to make it so that I'm not replacing this unhealthy habit with another unhealthy habit, right? That's the thoughtfulness part. So the R and the T at the end of reset are very, very introspective, reflective, insightful type of practices because I feel like we do have to spend time with ourselves, with our thoughts, practicing, you know, sitting still and how this process makes us feel. Because when we are in tune with how we feel, we make better decisions for ourselves. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Joseph. So that is your own framework that you've come up with, the reset framework. It is. It is. Yeah, Based on evidence-based medicine and, and literature and so forth. And I mean, I give a lot of talks to organizations and Zoom fatigue comes up a lot. And people don't know that there's an entire center at Stanford dedicated to Zoom fatigue 
I'll encourage people to go on that website and do the Zoom fatigue test. And people are like, oh my gosh, I have Zoom fatigue. This is real. It's not just me. It's not just me feeling unnatural looking at someone's eyes the entire time. We're not meant to look at people's eyes all the time. But if you don't do it, then you appear to be not interested, right? We're not supposed to be planted on a desk looking at a computer the entire time. We're supposed to be up and walking, right? But being online takes that away from us. We weren't built to respond to emails when they come in right away. Years ago, if the mail came in, there was always going to be more mail. So you can't rush and open them all because there's always going to be more mail. But there's something about seeing those unopened boxes that drives us crazy, right? So we have to acknowledge, that's why I say the beginning and the end of reset are really reflective because we just get so accustomed to the rat race that it becomes the norm and we are gaslighting ourselves into believing that this is normal and that something's wrong with us when we're exhausted and burnt out. No, this is not how our brains were made. We were meant to be out gathering, hunting, collecting, interacting with each other, singing songs. We're not doing that anymore. And these screens are replacing it. But we can't discount the fact that these screens have also improved our lives. We just have to figure out how to make it work for us using evidence-based information. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Joseph, as you're talking, I am thinking about how many more concerns and difficulties have been introduced into our jobs as mental health professionals and to all of our lives just by the advent of technology, right? Just this idea that Zoom fatigue 15 years ago, like that center wouldn't have existed, right? So it it definitely feels like to your point, there have been so many advantages and so many great things that have come with technology, but there's also the other side of it, right? That it has caused all of these difficulties. And even the way we talk about social media, like needing a detox Mm -hmm. and all of these things, can you talk about some of the addictive properties that exist within social media? Like, is it something that somebody can actually become addicted to? Absolutely. There are many centers that research social media addiction. There's a social media addiction scale. I believe it was developed by, I think, Bergen. And then there's an internet addiction scale by Young. And there are centers that study this that have created cognitive behavioral therapy for this type of addiction, because it it is real. Behaviors are capable of having tolerance and dependence. People have withdrawal, just like they would with the substance when they don't have access to the behavior that they've become addicted to. And so the things that make social media very addictive is the fact that we have access to it. When you look at any substance treatment, you'll see that access is the first step. If someone who uses has access, then that's a problem. And guess what? We have access all the time. I I just told you I had to silence three devices. (laughs) I have access to three devices. I remember when I had the Nokia and the flip phone, it wasn't as seamless. And that's the other issue. The experience is so seamless. We praise these devices that just get us, right? We don't want something that's clunky. But the problem is that when you have access, it's seamless. It's easy to get your high, so to speak. Then it's habit forming. And then with most of the substances that I see, at least in my practice, there tends to be something missing. There tends to be something in the person that has to find comfort in overuse of anything, right? So it could be trauma that's unresolved, It could be a lack of meaningful connections. It could be a replacement for feeling lonely. So there tends to be something else. And so I find that people who have a harder time with finding balance in their use 
And so we want to understand that a bit more because I want to tailor my treatment to the individual and not just say, well, it's because everyone's like this or everyone has a childhood trauma or everyone. We want to understand what's happening with each person. And that's why the beginning and end of reset are reflective, because I want you to really understand what's happening in you and, and why that there's this need to soothe in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can dig a little more into that for us, Dr. Joseph. Like, what kinds of questions would somebody ask for them to be able to uncover whether there is some concern around their social media usage? Because you said sometimes other people will see it, mm-hmm. right? Like, your kids will say, like, Mom, I never see your face. You're always in your phone or whatever. But what are some questions we can ask ourselves to examine our relationship? Well, I say that understanding how you feel is sometimes the most challenging part. And so when I ask my patients, what do you feel when you're using it? They're like, well, I don't know. I'm bored. Okay. Well, let's go a step before that. What were you feeling right before you were bored? And sometimes they're like, well, I don't know. And I'll encourage my patients to journal and to write down their feelings. Similar to the way that with children in school, we show them the faces and we show them like, this is a sad face. This is an anxious face. This is an angry face. Sometimes... I have to do that with my adult patients and say, well, let's use the face chart. How are you feeling? And many times they'll say, I was feeling anxious. I was feeling unsettled. I was feeling lonely. I felt fatigued and I just didn't have anything left in me. So I just got onto this device. And before I know it, hours have passed. So understanding how you feel is important. And here's why. If we enter a room and it's dark and we hear a scary noise, we're just going to (laughs) start swinging, right? as if our life depended on it. But if somebody turned that light on and we saw, oh, a book fell, we're not going to be swinging. We're going to understand what we're dealing with, what we're working with. So understanding how you feel is just as important because as human beings, we're afraid of the unknown. And if we don't know how we feel, we're not going to know how to appropriately respond. And that's a very, very big step. And people acknowledging whatever it is that they're feeling then we work on how do we address that. So if it's anxiety, we may want to do some more grounding techniques, more somatic or bodily techniques. With my clients, the younger ones, I'll have them sit on the chairs in my office and we'll practice squeezing oranges with the stress balls. And so we use a lot of vivid imagery with them and get playful. But with my adult patients, we'll do some deep diaphragmatic breathing because many of them are not aware that they're holding so much in their body, that they're holding their breath all day long, and that they're not breathing in the way that is the best suited way to release some of that tension. My clients will sit and will do progressive muscle relaxation, because they're not aware that they're holding a lot of their stress in their shoulders. And so we'll focus on these tiny muscle groups and mastering, relaxing and tensing them, so that eventually they can calm down that fight or flight sensation on their own and use it and practice it when they're not in fight or flight so that they're able to utilize it readily when they are in an anxious situation. If it's depression, I want to understand that because a lot of my clients have something that I call anhedonia. It's in the medical literature. It's been around for ages, but a lot of people don't know what it is. But it's literally a lack of pleasure and interest. What they'll describe is, meh, I feel this blah. But I find that is associated highly with over technology usage, because you're constantly online, you're checking emails, you're using these devices to give you that boost of dopamine. But over time, 
it's not going to make you feel satiated. And those are unnatural ways to boost your dopamine levels. And so what I'll do with these clients is I'll say, you're not going to feel like getting up. You're not going to feel like exercising. You're not going to feel like going for a walk, but we're not going to wait for you to feel like you want to do those things. What we're going to do is we're going to shift that cognitive behavioral therapy triangle and we're going to start the behavior first. We're going to have you getting up and walking when you're feeling meh, when you're having that anhedonia. And then we're going to see how your thoughts and your feelings are. Then we're going to track that because sometimes the behavior actually drives the thinking and the feelings. Similar to when people say, when you wake up in the morning, make your bed because it's the behavior that is pushing the feelings and the thinking in the right direction and not necessarily trying to challenge the thought. Beautiful. More from our conversation after the break. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Farm understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a backseat. That's where release the pressure comes in. It's all about us. Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in store to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars, an educational nonprofit. 
Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. So you mentioned earlier that one of the things that you're seeing, especially with your younger patients, is this difficulty with like social reciprocity. And we do know lots of people talk about like how social media has impacted their relationships. So can you dig a little deeper into that? Like what kinds of concerns are you seeing with some of your patients, whether that be romantic relationships, platonic relationships with their family? What's happening? You know, what's interesting is that Gen Z is the first generation to be born into a world where social media was always there. The internet was always there. So they deal with these unique challenges that older generations did not have to deal with, right? These are people who are born into worlds where their parents were looking at their phones instead of looking at them. Imagine that. And when you see a baby born, when I was in medical school, we would deliver babies. And for me, it was just like the most miraculous thing. I never got tired of it because it was, every baby was like a miracle. When the parent held the baby up, the baby would start imitating the parent automatically. They didn't have to learn it. They learned it from their parents. So you would see like the, the parents making these googly faces and the baby would do it. It'd be delayed because the baby's processing is slower. But the parent would stick their tongue out. The baby would stick their tongue out a couple of seconds later. So if you have this generation where they weren't getting as much of that interaction because either the parents were busy with the screens or they were getting a lot of their one-on-one replaced with screens, then you're set up for challenges with social reciprocity, right? You're not able to read cues as well as a child who didn't have that replaced, that interaction in real life replaced by a digital interaction or a screen. And being aware of this is really helpful because many people aren't aware of this. And The other thing is that when you're online constantly, Gen Z, I find within my practice, they're constantly comparing themselves to other people. Generations before didn't have that constant comparison. You didn't know what someone was doing all the time. You didn't know that people were like having a matcha latte and you weren't. All of that information was not necessary before. You have this generation that's been bombarded with information since they were babies, since they were children, since they were teens. And then on top of it, they were being captured digitally and their information was put up there by their parents. So they just have so many more challenges. I have a lot of empathy for this generation. I do think that they have strengths. McKinsey did a recent study looking at generations and how they tend to interact in society. And what they found with this study that was based in Brazil because it had the largest consumer population of multi-generations. What they found was that this Gen Z population, they're more into making sure that their peers are doing well. They're not okay with having progress if everyone doesn't have progress. They have a lot of strengths. They are more open about their mental health than early generations. But we also have to acknowledge the challenges that they have and empathize with them because they have challenges that we didn't have due to their exposure, their nonstop exposure. And we want to arm them with knowledge because, again, if you know what you're dealing with, if you know, oh, that's why I feel this way, it's not just me, there's not something wrong with me, I just didn't know that this was harmful, then they actually can do something about it. They can make that decision to do something about it. We don't want to be preachy and tell them what to do. We know that when people are intrinsically motivated to change, their outcome is better. When they try to change, they're going to have better results than if we're like, you should do this, right? And that's all humans, regardless of generations. And so we have to make sure that we put out that information there. That's why I use my social media platform to educate. Sometimes I get a lot of like, 
well, what am I supposed to do now? Like <laughs> my kid's been looking at screens and, you know, oh, great. I feel bad. It's not for that reason. It's to give you the education because we don't have the education. Many of us don't have the time to read journals, right? We don't have time to do the research. And so learning as much as you can, listen to a podcast, read a short article, educate yourself, take an online test to see what your habits are like. These are all ways that you can have agency and eventually, I think, master a good balance and then consider a reset and figure out how to work with technology to enhance your life versus having it potentially harm your well-being. So you've mentioned this idea of comparison a couple of times, and that comes up quite a lot in the Therapy for Black Girls community as well. So it seems like this is an issue across generations, right? Like young kids are comparing themselves, and we also have older adults who are comparing themselves, like you said, like who's having a latte? What kind of workout are you doing? Like that kind of thing. What tips do you have for people to kind of stop that habit of comparing themselves to what they're seeing online? So within my reset construct, some of it is time boundaries. So you can enforce, okay, I'm going to limit the amount of time I spend on these accounts on social media in general. And that could be done very slowly. I recommend not doing it cold turkey, because again, some people have withdrawal, they have FOMO. And so that's one thing that you can do. Another thing you can do is an account boundary. So like you're only going to follow certain accounts that you feel are authentic, where people are showing their good and their bad days. They're not just showing when everything's going great. It could be a full on boundary as to whether or not you're going to post, because I think that for many of us, it's this rejection that we feel when we post and we don't get the feedback that we hoped we would receive or we get negative feedback. So some people are okay with, I'm just going to like use this account just to see how my friends are doing and not post about myself. That's a boundary within yourself, right? Within your own practices. It could be, okay, what I'm going to do is I'll only follow accounts that give me meaningful information and not the frivolous stuff because we are not aware of how the frivolous stuff impacts us. I love fashion, but sometimes I have to unfollow some fashion brands because if I see another perfect image, I'm going to be like, oh, like maybe I shouldn't have had that bagel or whatever, you know, like, so I'm guilty of it too. I have to unfollow some things because they're not healthy for me. And so I think that we have to figure out a way that works for ourselves, that works for our own wellness, that meets our individual needs, but that requires getting to know ourselves. And sometimes you may need to actually sit with a therapist and go over what some of your practices are because it's not as readily apparent to all of us and we need help. So sometimes I'll sit with my clients and I'll go through what they typically look through. I'll sit with them and look at the accounts and we'll talk about how they feel and what they did after or before. And so sometimes you do need that support. You mentioned earlier this idea that sometimes because of what you do for work, you can't just get off social media, right? And I'm thinking about content creators specifically, right? So this idea that you make your money, you make your living based on posting online and being visible. But we know the algorithms are always changing, right? So you just mentioned you post something and then you only get 12 likes and what that might do to your self-esteem or your mental health. Can you say a little bit about what should content creators keep in mind given that they may have to be on these platforms more than most people for content creators know your business know your industry you know like researching it and understanding 
that the algorithm does X, Y, Z, and why it does that. I think that's the first step. And that's a part of the education part of reset. The E, the first E is educating yourself. Because when you know that, okay, this is not me, this is the algorithm, a part of your brain, the unconscious will take that in and you won't feel as bad when you have that education and that information. And what you're going to do with that knowledge is important. So knowing that the algorithm will sometimes reward you and sometimes will not reward you. What are you going to do with that information? Are you going to spend your time constantly checking that platform if you know that it's hit or miss, right? Are you going to take the time to say, okay, I'm going to leave this phone outside of my room. I'm not going to keep it in my bedroom because then I'm going to keep checking it. So what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to use it to create your plan, your strategy? So I want people to be mindful about that and to really think about what they're going to do with that information that they've learned. Are they going to implement that into their better practices? Are they going to create change within their lives? And if they're resistant, then I want to understand that a bit more. Why are they resistant now that they know this and they know that there are options and solutions? What's decreasing their motivation to change? And for me, as a therapist, I like to understand that because I feel like when my patients understand that, they can make better choices. Mm-hmm. More from our conversation after the break. Nowadays, a lot of these big companies pretend to care about our communities and issues with nothing more than lip service. State Farm is the opposite. They're actively investing in programs and initiatives that help educate in financial literacy, give early career advice, and grow Black-owned businesses, thus leading to generational wealth, which helps protect the future of our communities. Seeing our communities grow and thrive is something they care deeply about. They want to build a future that we all can be proud of. State Forum understands that representation alone doesn't mean authenticity, that it takes a good neighbor to sponsor programs like the AXO, a year-long program that recognizes and rewards high school students for their academic and cultural achievements, and to fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth that to date participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and can have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy here. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month. It's crucial for us, especially as Black women, to focus on our heart health. We pour our heart and soul into every aspect of our lives, but often our own health takes a back seat. That's where Release the Pressure comes in. It's all about us. Black women seeing self-care as an essential act of self-preservation. Whether it's for yourself, your family, or our community, your health is invaluable. Let's help to get our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Here's how you can join in. Head over to iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. Let's make our health a priority. Visit iHeartRadio.com slash RTP today. Together, we can make a difference in our health and our lives. Join us and let's take care of our hearts together. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, online and in-store. Some of my favorites are the jewelry from Hey Maeve, and the skincare products from Kaja. For the entire month of May, 
Join Macy's in supporting AAPI-owned fashion brands. You can show your support by donating online or by rounding up in stores to benefit APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Join me by rounding up your purchase to the nearest dollar at checkout to support API scholars, an educational nonprofit. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. So something else that comes up quite often is the level of distressing images we are privy to on social media, right? Like there's no shortage of awful things happening all across the world. And sometimes you will stumble across videos and different kinds of things that I think are often very violent and traumatic to witness. What kinds of things or strategies would you suggest for people around how to take care of themselves, given that you could stumble upon kind of anything online at this point? It's really a recent phenomenon. When I was growing up, we didn't have constant information. I saw this meme. I don't know who first posted it, but I I find it to be very brilliant. This woman says that she's on a plane and she's afraid of flying. And she says, I'm not going to sleep on this flight because I'm going to use all my mental energy to keep this plane in the air. And I love that meme because as human beings, sometimes we're like, well, if I don't follow every news story, if I don't respond and champion every cause for this specific belief, then I'm failing the group. And it's so not true. For hundreds of years, things went on in the world, and we didn't know about them. It's not to say that it's not important, because we do want to make sure that we are informed. But there is no need, unless you are like a journalist who's specifically covering a region, there is no need for us to be informed 24-7. And Collective trauma is real. PTSD that is secondary is real. When we see things that are life-threatening, that are violent, that are just horrifying, we can experience trauma responses. And so, again, that's where the knowledge comes in. I, I do a lot of content about that. Guard your brain. Like when whatever you see leaves a print on your brain. It leaves a print on your soul, your spirit. So we want to limit to the best of our ability, those that exposure to those horrifying images, because they may lead to secondary PTSD symptoms, which are poor sleep, nightmares, feeling tense, having poor concentration, feeling angry at the world, feeling like there's no safe place in the world. For some people, it's reckless behavior. Some people feel as if they're not in touch with their bodies, they have dissociative experiences. And especially people who have a history of trauma, again, If you have a history of your own personal trauma, being exposed to these secondary traumas can trigger your own trauma response. So knowledge is so powerful. If you know this, then you can make hopefully more informed decisions, better decisions moving forward. So you mentioned, Dr. Joseph, that going cold turkey, completely disconnecting from social media may be difficult for people. Can you get us started with maybe some no phone zones or no device zones that if we want to take this first step, where should we start? Well, if you're in your home, I say I used to be an anesthesiologist before I switched to psychiatry. And the, the most important parts of anesthesia were the takeoff, like a pilot, and the landing, right? So you put the patient under, then you wake them up. And I say the same things to my patients. I say the the most important part of your day is how you start your day and how you end your day. Because those are the times when you 
supposedly have the most control, right? When you leave the house, things can happen. Work can happen. School can happen. Life happens, right? But I hope for many people, they have some more power as to how they start and end a day. So let's start there. Those are the baby steps. When you wake up in the morning, and I'll have my clients take journals, what are you doing? What's the first thing you're doing when you wake up? I tell you, many people will say the first thing they do is check their phone, right? Now, hundreds of years went by with people not having a phone next to them. So I think you'd be okay if you put the phone outside, right? And for many people, that's the hardest part. They want to sleep with their phone, right? And so if you can slowly move that phone away from you, so the first week, maybe not put it on the nightstand, but plug it into the wall. And then the next week, maybe not plug it into the wall in your room, but plug it into the wall right outside your room. And you know, you get the idea. You move it further and further away from the bed. Because even that little bit amount of light can disrupt your melatonin, can disrupt your sleep. So we don't want people having that disruption. And also knowing that the phone is there and starting your day that way can set you into a mood of anxiety for the rest of the day. So with my clients, I'll say, keep the phone as far away from the bed as possible and give yourself as much time in the morning as possible. Because when any of us are rushed, things are worse. Being rushed is like probably one of the worst ways to start a day. And then as you wake up, and these in Manhattan, I ask people to move the shades and get some fresh sunlight because we are living, breathing humans, right? We need that vitamin D. We need that sunlight. We need that to reset and restore our inner clocks and drink a glass of water and just reflect and use mindfulness. Think about that water. Think about it going down your throat. Think about how it feels. Try to engage your senses because, again, that's the first part of reset, the realization, you know. And so if you can do that for the beginning of your day and then the end of your day, right, I mentioned that melatonin is important. So try to keep that digital light as low as possible. Try not to use any of it, if possible, after nine. For some people who can't do that, they'll use the orange glasses that you can buy in the store or online to block that digital light and try to do something relaxing before you go to bed, not checking emails because the emails will really make you anxious if you check them before bed. Doom scrolling will make you anxious before you go to bed. Journaling is a great replacement. So put three things for the day that you're grateful for and next to three things that you're worried about and then close it and then put it away, right? So you're unloading, unpacking your worries onto something and then also being grateful and putting it away. So these are calming things you can do at the end of the day along with other things. There's a slew of sleep hygiene things. But if you can start with the beginning and the end of your day, I think that's a great start. I think it's harder in the middle of the day because many people work online and they need to check their emails. But, you know, some small things that you can do during your work day is, okay, maybe you can get up during lunch. Maybe you don't have to eat through lunch looking at your screen. Or if you don't have that luxury, maybe you can at least take five minutes away from your desk to go get a cup of tea or get a glass of water, to go to the bathroom, because many people work throughout their day and don't even use a bathroom. In my study on high-functioning depression, I see this a lot, people just working through their day, eating, drinking at their desk, not going to the bathroom, rushing home, you know. So like, try and be mindful about those tiny breaks during the day if you can. But I feel like you have more mastery and agency over the beginning and ends of the day because your home, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Thank you for those tips. I think those would be super helpful for people. So I'm really curious to hear more about this transition from anesthesiology to psychiatry. Can you give me the short <laughs> version of that story and what prompted that change? 
Well, I was raised in a very traditional Caribbean religious household. My dad's a pastor. And mental health was not really talked about in a way that that being explained as a spiritual issue. And so when I went to college at Duke, I studied religion and biology and chemistry. So I was like, okay, which is the real thing? And then I came to a point in my life that I don't have to choose. I can have faith and I can have spirituality and I can also believe in science. And when I went to medical school, I just found that I wasn't feeling fulfilled in my field of anesthesiology, and I wanted to talk to patients. And I remember when I was in medical school before I matched into anesthesiology residency, I did a rotation in South Africa where we were working with these children who had severe levels of trauma. And we did these trauma-based focus groups with them, trauma-based cognitive behavioral therapy. That was like the best I felt throughout all of medical school. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could just do that, you know, instead of something where I feel as if I'm not really making a difference. And don't get me wrong, anesthesiologists, I have a high respect for them. They have to keep patients alive during a, a surgery and then wake them up and then make sure they're not in pain. It's a very difficult job, but it wasn't fulfilling for me. And I just felt as if I wasn't being my authentic self. I was doing what I thought would make my parents proud. And in a Caribbean household, if you tell them, I'm going to leave this profession where I'm in the operating room and I'm going to go and work with people who have mental health issues, they're like, why are you going to go and work with them crazy people? You know, like, and I had to educate my community that what we were seeing in the church, we were calling it spirits, that was a psychotic condition. You know, the person may have had trauma. And I think that at least within my church community, it's grown significantly, but there was a lot of taboo. And I'm so fortunate that my program at Columbia had an opening that I was able to switch from anesthesiology there to psychiatry. I never looked back. Psychiatry is so rewarding on so many levels. And I run a lab here, so I'm still able to do the procedures that I love from anesthesiology, but I apply them to behavioral science. And I'm able to use the knowledge in my lab to educate people, to make these videos that are simple but evidence-based and bring science to the masses in a way that it's easy to digest and they are feeling as if they're going back to school. I love when people are like, oh, I'm learning so much. That was the point, you know, to make these videos that are where you're learning. Because again, if you don't know what you're dealing with, if you're in the dark, you're going to be afraid. You're going to be swinging. But then when you know what you're dealing with, you're not going to be swinging. You're going to make informed decisions. Well, we are grateful that you answered that calling and stepped into that purpose. Thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> so I could talk to you all day, I feel like, Dr. Joseph, but I know you have a busy schedule and have to get back to your day. So tell us, where can we stay connected with you? What's your website as well as any social media handles you'd like to share? I enjoyed speaking with you. I'm a huge fan of your work and so fortunate for doctors like you who put themselves out there. It's risky, but you do it. And it is so beneficial to millions of people. So thank you for having me. You can find me at Dr. Judith Joseph on TikTok and Instagram. And that's also my website name. And I started a newsletter and a podcast where I can give informative tips that I use in my practice. And hopefully with your therapist, you can use these tips to support your mental health. Well, we will be sure to include all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad Dr. Joseph was able to share her expertise with us today. To learn more about her and the work she's doing, be sure to visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 342. And don't forget to text this episode to two of your girls right now and encourage them to check out the episode. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, visit our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com directory. 
And if you're looking for a support system to aid you in your new year journey, join us over in the Sister Circle. It's our cozy corner of the internet where we celebrate, support, and practice vulnerability each week. This January, we're setting the foundation to turn our resolutions into realities. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. This episode was produced by Frida Lucas, Elise Ellis, and Zaria Taylor. Editing was done by Dennison Bradford. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. Hey ladies, it's Dr. Joy. As women, we put our hearts into everything. May is High Blood Pressure Education Month, and it's time to focus on our heart health. Release the Pressure wants to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. During High Blood Pressure Education Month, let's help get to our goal of 100,000 Black women putting their hearts first and learn more about their heart health. Visit iHeartRadio.com RTP for a chance to receive a $1,000 gift card to take care of yourself and prioritize your heart health. That's iHeartRadio.com RTP. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb, your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate Girlbomb grip and professional-grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girlbomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girlbomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you.